So with the Oscars right around the corner, actually, to be more specific, about a week and change from now, uh, I wanted to go back and uh, celebrate the Oscar nominees that have been on the podcast by going back and remastering old episodes, uh, giving you guys some additional content with new music and new sound, um, but really to just sort of go back and celebrate the conversation that I've had with uh, two two nominated cinematographers for Oscars this year. And uh, if you haven't heard it yet, uh, go check out the remastered version that I did with uh, the interview with Dan Lauston, who did uh, was nominated for Nightmare Alley this year, the Guillermo del Toro flick. Uh, cool movie, actually. It was a slow film, but a masterpiece nonetheless. And Guillermo just is slaying it every movie he makes. And Dan did such a beautiful job with that film. Um, but today's episode is with the other Academy Award nominated cinematographer that's been on our show, the amazing Greg Frazier. Now, what is Greg Frazier shot? Well, he's nominated for, one would argue, one of the most beautiful uh, sci-fi pictures ever shot. Dune. Super excited about that film. Did you guys see it in the theater? Did you get a chance to see it on the big screen? Or did you wait around to watch it on HBO Max? Come on, be truthful, be realistic. Uh, that movie-going experience was so much fun for us here. Uh, Gina and I went and saw it with uh, Will, and we went to the um, Universal Theater, uh, which is super amazing. The sound design there was phenomenal. Uh, when those like those uh, grasshopper helicopters were landing, like the entire place was shaking. I felt like I was on the landing pad. Such an awesome, awesome movie-going experience. I was so lucky and fortunate to see it on such a ginormous screen and to see his work up there. But uh, I'm no stranger to Greg's work. I love his stuff. I loved his work on Rogue One. Uh, more recently, if you guys have seen it, uh, the Batman, his work on the Batman is phenomenal. Uh, his his like desaturated, muted tones that felt like they came out of the 90s, but they were very specifically him. Really great stuff. Let's see, what else has he shot that you may have known? Uh, how about The Mandalorian? He was director of photography on three episodes of that show. I helped set up the look for that show. Uh, how about a movie called Vice? Did you guys end up seeing Vice? That was a great, great film. He also shot The Gambler. Um, he also shot Foxcatcher. He shot Zero Dark Thirty, which I love the way that movie looks. And let's go back even further to Killing Them Softly. I love the photography of that film. Uh, Greg's one of those guys that uh, I really wasn't keeping track of, but every once in a while I'd see a movie and go, who fucking shot this? Oh, shit, it's that guy. Uh, and it, just to see the uh, evolution of his work, how it's changed over time, and getting to the point where he's working with directors that uh, through that collaboration, he's able to create visual masterpieces. I cannot wait to see Dune Part Two. Uh, Denis just murdered those films. It felt like visual poetry on screen. Uh, if you haven't seen it yet, I think it finally came back around to HBO Max, whatever their distribution plan is, because it goes directly to HBO Max, 
and then it leaves HBO Max for a little while. Did you guys notice that? I think that's because it gets licensed to other outlets and they make a little bit more money on the licensing on that other stuff. Um, and then just last week or this week, it came back to HBO Max. So I'm excited to watch it again. Um, I don't know if it's in the theater still. I would almost go see it in the theater again. Maybe that'll be the last time you can see it in the theater. So yeah, maybe I should do that. But anyway, I'm rambling. It's late at night on a Wednesday. I want to get this out for tomorrow so that you guys can listen to it. Thank you uh, for supporting the show. And if you haven't figured it out yet, you're listening to In Love With The Process. I am your host, Mike Petchy. How are you? I am going back and recycling old material <laughs> to give you guys something new to listen to. Um, and before I get into this older interview, and I let me sort of set it up. I did this interview before he could talk about any of these projects. I randomly grabbed him um, like in between shooting. And I think he was shooting on Batman or the Batman when I grabbed him. Um, I don't think he was on Dune. I think he had finished Dune, but he really couldn't talk specifics because none of the films were out. So when we did this interview, we had to sort of skirt around it. Um, I think I had seen at this point an advanced screening of the Batman, um, which I talked about on last week's episode. Um, so yeah, it was tough because I really wanted to get into the nitty gritty with him and I couldn't because he wasn't allowed to talk specifics. Um, him and I have been chatting on Instagram since and I'll probably get him back on the show. Would you guys like me to get him back on the show and talk to him some more, sort of pull it apart and uh, get into some details, some nitty gritty stuff? I'm sure he's in the midst of shooting Dune Part 2, but I could probably get him back on. What do you think? Send me a message on Instagram at Mike Petchy or at the podcast Instagram at In Love With The Process, P-O-D, pod on Instagram. Um, yeah, let's see. What else can I give you guys? Because I feel like I should give you some new stuff. Um, so recording this late, I've been helping. This week has been an interesting week. I have been writing again. I've been uh, coming up with new concepts and new ideas for films. Uh, I'm kind of excited because I'm uh, feeling just sort of a reinvigorated energy to start shooting something new again and something quick again instead of having to wait forever for the larger movies to happen. Um, so we'll see. I spent the entire afternoon uh, writing out a new idea, and I wrote out two ideas prior to that. What I'm trying to do is teach myself how to not fall too in love with an idea, right? It's, doesn't that sound weird to you too? Uh, because one of the big issues that I keep running into is that I'll start to work on something and I'll fall completely in love with it. And then it'll either dissolve or it'll just go into this very slow, long crawl development process, which on either end of it, it sucks because you just want to start shooting. You just want to make these things. Um, but the same token, I need to continue to make new ideas, put new ideas down on paper, put new ideas out there in the ethos, continue to fill that slow-moving conveyor belt as it works its way through the system so that way I'm not just waiting around, you know? Does that make sense? Yeah, it's, it's, it's strange, man. It's a strange place to be. And so what I'm trying to do is train my brain, reflex my muscles on idea creation, and just feel confident and comfortable with putting them on paper. Not necessarily creating these ideas to film them, but put them on paper. Sounds weird, right? 
I don't know if it's like some sort of new safety mechanism that I'm actually doing. I don't know if it's the right thing to do or not, but uh, I have to find a way to keep creating and allow myself to fall in love with the idea to a certain extent without callousing myself over, without being too jaded because of how long it takes this stuff to be made. It's weird. I don't know if I'm doing a good job explaining it. I'm, I'm, I'm making my way through it now, and I'm sort of pushing my way through it. I was talking to the therapist about it. I've been talking to my friends about it. Um, and uh, I will say this. The general consensus through everybody is they want me to shoot something. They want me to shoot something new. They want to see what... Uh, the two plus years of hibernation and and learning and researching and storyboarding and and teaching myself new techniques on how to handle actors. They want to know what all that stuff is going to make. Um, and it's nice. I I completely am so thankful to have friends around me, to have family around me, to have fans around me that support me and really want to see the new work. It's incredibly helpful, especially when things get tough and when things take forever and when sometimes things look like they're not going to happen and then the next day they're going to happen and then the next day they're not going to happen. It's just on and off. And we've talked about this on the show, the bipolar nature of our business. Um, but uh, I really, really, really suggest to anybody that's in this business or getting into this business, make sure you surround yourself with healthy people. Make sure you surround yourself with people that won't listen to your bullshit, right? Your excuses, you know, your callous, your callousness. People that just sort of cut through it, you know? People that are, aren't afraid to say to you, you don't really believe that. And you are just being depressed, right? You're just allowing yourself to be depressed. You're allowing it, you're allowing an excuse to come between you and your work and your art. You know, people like that, I'm so happy that I have people like that around me because people like that keep me going. People like that pull me through stuff. And those of you who are listening and you guys and girls know who you are, uh, thank you. Thank you. Um, because it's been it's been rocky. It's been up and down, and COVID's been this. COVID's created this world for all of us, and I don't feel like a special snowflake saying this because I know all of you are going through the same thing. So many of my friends are out there pitching and pushing and trying and getting rejected. It's tough. It's a tough, tough business. But anyway, let's not go too deep into that. All I'm saying is thank you. <laughs> Thank you for being interested in this show, for supporting the show, for continuing to tell your friends about this show. Our numbers spike. It's wild. I, I, I can't figure it out. There are days where we're just running at regular, you know, like a Tuesday or like a Wednesday, Thursday, and then a Friday spikes. And we suddenly have had three times the listeners that we've ever had on the show. It's, it's fucking wild. And then after the spikes, we have a new regular, which is usually, I don't know, I'd say 15% more than it was the week before. So it's cool. The growth of this show just feels very organic. It feels natural. Um, we don't buy followers. I, I, I'm sure you've seen it on my Instagram page where people are like, hey, uh, 
every fucking post I do recently, it's like, hey, uh, promote on this thing, promote on this account. And I continuously get messages from people going, would you like followers? We can get you organic followers, blah, blah, blah. It's just, the more I see this and the more they sort of beat it into you, the more they just sort of hang on to every post and continuously write to you, the more I, I wonder how many people actually pay for that stuff, you know? Because I'm sure there are some. Uh, but we haven't done it here at the show, man. All of the views, all of the followers, all of the comments are from real people that really listen to the show and that really love the show. Um, and as a reward, um, there's a lot of stuff coming in the future. I've got some plans in play, so we'll see how it works out. But uh, I'm going to try to get you guys some stuff. Um, are you guys interested in merch? I keep hearing that people are like, hey, man, I'd love to buy a T-shirt. What do you think of the new logo? Should I get the new logo on a T-shirt? I don't know. Send me a message on Instagram. Let me know. Um, let's see what else is going on. So besides doing this and besides writing new ideas, I have been helping Gina uh, prep. Once again, here's a great example. Gina's in the same boat I am. That's why I think we work so well together as a couple. Because as a photographer, you're busy until you're unemployed, right? As a music video director, you're busy until you're unemployed. Luckily, uh, Gina has taught herself multiple um, positions in this business. So these days she's doing everything from photography to music video directing to uh, creative direction to uh, commercial direction to campaign shoots. So I'm incredibly proud of her. Uh, but then, you know, after we got out of the second round of COVID, things were really dry for a lot of people, right? And your uh, unemployment runs out, you're running off of your savings accounts. How many of you people listening are going, yes, we know, that's where we are. Um, and I don't know, let's say um, January is when everybody started to panic a little bit, right? Oh, fuck, I got I to gotta start reaching out to my contacts. I got to start reaching out to my old clients. Let me try to get some more work, right? You do the hustle. Remember, the rule is you hustle hard and it'll take at least two months, maybe three, sometimes five months for those little hustles that you did to come to flourishing. And if I have seen anything from Gina's work, it has been this week seeing that theory actually come true. She's been hustling for two or three months to get back out there, to come out of the back end of COVID. And for a little while, it just feels bleak right? Because it didn't seem like anybody was hiring anybody. And if you examine that on sort of a social level, that makes a lot of sense because those folks are going through the same thing that we're going through. There's been a lot of layoffs, a lot of restructures in these larger companies and these larger businesses, right? And they're all going through the same kind of thing. They're also coming out of depression, sort of analyzing their own lives, right? What am I doing? Is this what I wanted to do? My life was different when COVID happened. All that was happening. But rule of thumb plays. You start throwing work out there. You start reaching out to people. Three months later, slammed. This week, she has been slammed. And I'm super proud of her. Uh, I don't know if I'm allowed to talk about the specifics, but she is shooting for a major publication today. I spent the entire day yesterday uh, hunting for gear for her, putting together gear packages, um, and she's out there doing a collection of photo and video, very similar to the stuff that she did with Robert Pattinson for GQ, 
let's just say this is for a different publication, potentially a publication that is going to give her uh, the honor that she deserves for doing the work. But anyway, <laughs> um, so I'm excited, man. She's out there. She's rolling with the Black Magic cam the camera that uh, we have. Super excited about Black Magic. They sponsor the show. Uh, we just, I spent an entire day working with that rig, uh, downloading different LUTs, uh, processing different LUTs, shooting all sorts of different formats, doing posts on them, pushing the limits of the raw stuff. I'm very impressed with that rig. For what it does and for what it is, it's really great. The only fucking thing that drives me crazy about it is the fact that the only way you can charge its batteries is in the camera body itself. And maybe I can get my hands on some like second rate charge charger for these things, um, but I don't trust those. So we're in the process now. Uh, we have a new sponsorship. Gina has a sponsorship with Small HD. Very excited about that. We're getting a bunch of small HD equipment. We just got uh, one of their huge uh, uh, client monitors, field production monitors, and it's beautiful. Uh, we just got a, a, a brand new onboard monitor as well. I think that's the Cine 7. Um, and so we were testing all that stuff. And of course, all this stuff comes in like two days before a shoot. So it's always a frantic hustle. Uh, I was putting together an external battery pack setup. Um, I was very fortunate, uh, to get help on that stuff from a local rental company. Um, and they know who they are. I'm not going to plug you guys until you sponsor us, <laughs> but I was very excited about that. So I rounded up all this gear and, uh, we're excited because, uh, Ian Spencer, who, uh, was Gina's original assistant, uh, and collaborator back in Boston, uh, has come out. He's uh, staying out with us this week, uh, and it's like having an old pal back at home. It's like our sons come home to hang. Um, and so Ian and I spent the entire day yesterday dusting off the old gear, putting together our packages. Um, and then it was a wild day of like training because it was learn how to use the Blackmagic rig, uh, learn how to use the new small HD stuff, uh, try to load these LUTs, process these LUTs, uh, do some lighting tests with these lots, see how tungsten and daylight reacts with the specific lots. Um, and then we had to swap our brains into photo world, uh, dust off the old pro photo stuff um, because Gina's also shooting medium format stuff. <laughs> she's shooting stuff on mini DV. She's shooting stuff on high H. She's shooting stuff on DV. It's insane the amount of shit that they're doing this afternoon. Um, so we got the pro photo stuff out and we started to dust that off and I walked them through some different lighting setups that I would suggest for it. So it uh, was a pretty intense day yesterday. I was pretty exhausted. Uh, it was a freebie day for me, but I was super happy to do it because I am incredibly proud of Gina. And uh, like you guys that listen to the show, I try to offer my experiences up as a footstool uh, so that way you guys can go further faster. Um, and uh, Spoiler alert, she sent me an image uh, that they took today of uh, an actor that you guys all know, and it looks fucking amazing. So <sighs> the hard work bull paid off, man. But anyway, yeah, that's what's going on. I feel like I've been rambling long enough. I've been stretching this out. So many of you are here going, hey, look, shut up, dude. We want to listen to your interview with Greg Frazier. Okay, all right, I get it. You know the deal. 
Strap yourselves in, grab those noise-canceling headphones, crank them up to 11, sit back and relax, and enjoy a classic episode, remastered, of In Love With The Process. Hey, Greg, thanks for being on the show, my man. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. Uh, like I was saying offline, uh, really big fan of your work. I've been following your stuff for for years, actually. Um, and when I was just sort of doing a little bit of research before we did the show, there was a bunch of stuff that you had done that I didn't realize you had done. And I'm like, oh, fuck, I love that thing, too. <laughs> uh, that's cool. What, what stuff did you realize? I mean, that's, it's good to know because sometimes uh, you know, I forget about stuff as well. You know, and it's funny... I was talking to somebody about this yesterday and I realized um, some stuff that I did I'd forgotten about. I was like, oh yeah, that's right. That um, short film that I did, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Like how you like how to destroy angels, that music video for Trent yeah. Reznor and his and his wife. Man, that video was amazing. And I had Thank you. no idea that it was your work. I just saw that on IMDB and I was like, oh, that makes sense. And that makes sense how you got hooked up with that director. And then was that the transition for you to Huntsman and all that sort of stuff? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure if we did Huntsman after that or before that. But yes, uh, you know what? No, we did Huntsman after it. You're right. Um, but I've been working with Rupert for quite a while uh, before that mm -hmm. point and, you know, done quite a few commercials with him. And um, I think I started shooting commercials with him in like 2007, you know, when I was still living in Australia. Mm -hmm. And, you know, thankfully, well, a lot of the commercials that, uh, that he was doing was over, that were overseas, like Argentina or Europe or, and so for me to get there from Australia was pretty simple and pretty easy. So, um, you know, we had a, we had a very good relationship already. And then, mm -hmm. um, yeah, how to destroy angels was part of that. So yeah, I, I'm really proud of that. It's funny you say that one because I'd forgotten all about that until a couple of days ago. <laughs> and I was like, because I was explaining to somebody, it was in Australia actually, um, why I decided to make the move to California, to, to, to America. You yeah. know, there's, you know, like Hollywood is kind of like, the, beckons a lot of people, actors, actresses, you know, technicians. And, and, and for us, we were, we were really not inspired by the stardom of Hollywood as it stands, you know, where, we live in Venice, which is as, almost as far away as you can get from Hollywood mm -hmm. while still being, you know, able to access it. What we loved about California was the fact that it's really simple. Like the, the weather and the the vibe out here is just fantastic. And it reminds us a bit yeah. of Australia, but the, the access to um, slightly bigger uh, and more involved work. You know, How to Destroy Angels mm -hmm. was an example that I brought up because 
I'd done music videos in Australia and there's generally a kind of a cap to the music videos. And the directors that are doing music videos in Australia are doing a great job with with no money. You know, they're coming up with some really clever ideas and but there's still only fifteen thousand or ten thousand or something that's very yeah, missing. Yeah. Particularly in those days when I say in those days like a I'm a geriatric, but in those days when we were shooting only <laughs> film, you know, and mm-hmm. digital and five Ds weren't an option uh, at that point. So, you know, Had It Australia Angels was a fantastic one because I, when I came to the US, you know, I did a couple of music videos. I did a Arcade Fire music video mm-hmm. with Spike Jones, and then that thing with Rupert. And I was like, this is awesome. This is the stuff that dreams are made of. You know, we get to work with some amazing bands doing mm-hmm. amazing music. I mean, that Arcade Fire album is still one of it's my amazing. favorite albums. And I yeah, yeah, and yeah. I didn't realize it when I was shooting with them in Austin how good the album was. So, mm. yeah. it's it's You bring up a good point, and I've talked about it on the show, because myself, I've been a director for about 19 years, and I've mostly been a director on the East Coast, and I just recently moved to the West Coast because I was feeling – kind of the similar thing where if you're not in one of the hubs, if you're not in uh, like Los Angeles, honestly, uh, you, you start to feel that cap. There's that yeah. cap on music video budgets. There's that cap on, on uh, being able to hang out with actors and especially being a director, trying to get movies off the ground. It's all yep. about who you know and who you're drinking beers with really. So yep. um, making that move was such an important part for my, for my career too. So um, and, and speaking of, of getting access and working with directors, I mean, the laundry list of just amazing directors that you have been able to work with, uh, from early on, at least in the film career is, it's just outstanding. How did you, well, let's start at the beginning. Like, how did you get started in this business? I, I, I think I read somewhere you started as a photographer, right? I studied photography. Yeah. Yeah. So at high school, you know, like most people in high school, I didn't really have much of a uh, an idea what I was doing, you know, mm-hmm. it, it, it was a very blurry future that I had. I, I knew I enjoyed uh, doing videos and I was editing VHS to VHS. I knew <laughs> that I liked doing, uh, make, uh, taking stills and printing 35 mil black and white. And like, there are mm-hmm. things at school that I enjoyed and, and, and subsequently, cause you, cause I enjoyed them. Then I excelled at them, you know, not, Excelled, excelled, but I, I was, that was the, that was, I was the best at photography of all of my classes. Doesn't mean I was mm. the best of the, at school, but I was, that was the, the thing that I was the best at. So it kind of made sense that I would then just keep that ball rolling and applied for a photography college in Melbourne, which is RMIT, um, very, very highly regarded photography college. Mm. Or so they told us. And, um, <laughs> no, I shouldn't say that because they were yeah, fantastic. Um, but, you know, great lecturers and, and, and a very good fundamental basis of, uh, stills, you know, and mm. uh, again, Melbourne is a fantastic city. It's a very cultural and, and very diverse city. And, uh, it's a great place to, 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 to be an artist. You know, it's a great place to do art and to be, cause you feel supported by society in general and by your friends and by, um, by, by, by the government. There's, there's, there's arts grants and all sorts of right. things that they can give right, you. Right, right. So it, it's, it's a little bit like, um, it's a bit of a hub for, um, for artists. And as a photographer, you know, I loved art photography, but ultimately there's only so much you can do. And I also tended to 
uh, photographers tend to have a thing generally. That's not always the mm-hmm. case. So you, I'm sure there'll be people listening that will be like, you don't know what you're talking about. But generally, <laughs> photographers have a thing. They are a dot, 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 dot photographer. They are right, a black and white right. portrait photographer. They are right. a, a landscape um, dusk photographer. They do, you know, stuff at night in fog and backlight. And, you know, there's a thing they do. And yeah. And those things are amazing because they finesse them and they work really hard at making them amazing. You've got those great photographers that just kind of do their thing and they do it extraordinarily well. Um, my biggest problem was that I could not do one thing. Um, I got too bored and I, and I wasn't really uh, – it's not that I wasn't uh, hardworking by any stretch. It was more that I have a very short attention span. So – you know, once I've done 10 portraits for a series, I don't want to see another person. I want to look at a product for the next six months. Yeah, of course. So, of course. Um, I, I felt a little bit despondent with um, photography as it stood at that point in time. Um, I still loved taking photos. I still loved making images. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I joined a, 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 a photography and um uh, and film making studio as a um, as a cleaner when I was at university, and you know I got to know the photographers and the filmmakers, and and and, and while I was also doing some some professional photography, I was also helping out the directors as a director's assistant and as a runner, and like just just basically making uh, you know making a, a a mess of things and trying to put myself always into the picture when people were hiring crew. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, I wasn't a DP, but I was. I knew I, I wanted to to push into the film industry, be it as a, a director or a DP or something. Like I, I knew that that's kind of where the where the bicycle was going, you know. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and then uh, eventually, I mean, you know, I started shooting some projects for for some of my buddies, and uh, some of them got really successful like again i was talking about it the first short film that i shot was a film called cracker bag that that won a palm door at uh, at khan in 2003 so for for the director it's uh, that's a better award than a dp but still it's kind of testament to it just it just put another little tick on the on the resume you know yeah yeah palm door winning um you know i did a couple of international music videos that were successful in the UK and, um, you know, and, but meanwhile, we're all young and dumb, you know, we're all dumb filmmakers that are just doing what we think's right. And turns out that a lot of it was really good. And I look back at that stuff and I'm like, those directors that I worked with who are still my buddies to this day, you know, um, and I'm, and I still work with to this day, thankfully, um, yeah, yeah, incredibly, incredibly talented and are incredibly talented. And me being able to kind of, um, feed off them and then feed off me. Like I felt like it was a very much a Melbourne at that period of time, you know, around 2000, 2000, you know, to sort of 2008. It was a very fertile time in advertising and music videos mm-hmm. in Melbourne. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. No, I mean, a lot of that stuff's changed recently. And, and, and many of the people that listen to this show are people that are just sort of looking for like the real stories the real way that uh, to crack in the business and and everybody's always looking for the rhythm and the 
and the uh, the steps that they should take to get in. And I consistently am telling folks like it's constantly changing. Like it's yeah. changed since I started this shit 19 years ago. I'm sure it's changed since you started this shit. Like uh, doing music videos is a much different thing these days. Budgets are like, God damn, budgets are nothing now. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's really difficult to get into that. But the thing that's fascinating about what you're talking about is it's kind of similar to what I did, which is, um, get in with a group of friends and get in the ground up and start from a crew position and work yeah. your way up that way, which totally. is interesting. Yeah. You know, and then ultimately you're owed favors by people. And if you want to shoot something for yourself, you've got some buddies that owe you a favor and that come out mm-hmm. like, the, like the Amish building a barn, you know, we all chip in <laughs> to make somebody's movie and, um, it, 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 and you're right. And, and I, I also get asked all the time about what advice I can give. And the problem is, is that, I'm. I, I can't give advice in the sense that I can't tell, you know, eighteen-year-old um, Jane Bloggs or Joe Bloggs how to get a start. I mean, mm. all I can say is shoot and 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 find people who are very good at their jobs, the directors, and and offer to shoot stuff for them. You know, I I remember. Back in years gone by, there's a there's a there's a fantastic friend of mine, director named Nash Edgerton, who I did some short films with, like Spider and Lucky, and which were uh-huh. got a little bit of a following on you know on social media back in th- that day. Um, but but I saw a music video that he did for a band called um, Eskimo Joe, and uh-huh. it's a song called Liar. And I would recommend um, personally, if everyone pauses this podcast right now. And does a Google search <laughs> for that music video because I think it's one of the best music videos I've ever seen because it it had no money. Um, they had probably two rolls of film. I think they shot two takes. It was a single take, and they did two takes or something. Um, they they dressed these guys up in suits. It's just a great idea. It's a great concept for a no money music video, and it's mm. got it's got it sets a tone and a mood and a. Um, it, it's everything about filmmaking that's fantastic. It, and it, it, it tells a story slowly over the course of a period of time. And you learn the, you, you understand the reasoning for the beginning at the end. Like it's, it's, a, it's a, to me, it's textbook, perfect music video. Um, so I wrote to him, I saw that I wrote to him. I, I can't remember actually if it was an email, I might've actually just posted him my, um, my reel, um, mm. on VHS, like, Again, going back, I feel very old <laughs> talking about this now. Yeah, um, it's a good bit. <laughs> but but you know, I posted to him and said, dude, just FYI, I love that music video. Um, I would love to work with you. He was in Sydney. I was in Melbourne. You know, something came up. He called me. I drove to Sydney, you know, slept on uh, someone's couch, shot his mm-hmm. music video. So it was like I, I hunted people whose work I respected and loved. And... Um, thankfully, a lot of those people I already knew in Melbourne. So the people that I didn't know, um, like the the, the 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 Nashes of the world, uh, mm-hmm. I I I wrote to and said I'd like to work with you, and uh, here's what I've done. And you know, so you know, you know, I wasn't aggressive, but I was also I was passionate. Um, you know, I was like, I, I want to do this. Like, well, I think when I know, and this this goes down the line too, when I'm when I'm shooting a, a, a movie or I'm pitching on a movie or I'm, I'm meeting with a director about a film, um, 
like I know if I can hit it out of the park or not. Like I know if if I get it. Like there are a couple of films I met on that I just went, I I don't I don't really fully understand this, or I don't think I could hit it out of the park. And either I didn't get the movie, or mm-hmm. I had to turn the movie down because I I just realised that I wasn't gonna do a good job of it. Uh, and not to say that I have hit everything out of the park. It's very presumptuous to assume that, but when you read something or you meet someone and you talk to them about something, you go, well, I, I do. It's like, yeah, no, I, I know how to do this and I, and I'll, I could do an, I do a great job of it. And, and to interrupt you, is that, is that something that you're discover? Is that something that you understand as soon as you read a script or is that something that you need to read a script and then talk to the director about? Like how does well, that I need process to talk to work? the director because ultimately, um, when I read a script, I read it, in my voice and mm-hmm. my voice may not be the right voice. And then I speak to the director and, uh, the, you know, uh, uh, there are, there are exceptions to that, um, to that rule. Um, the, the, on let me in, I read that script very quickly and, uh, I hadn't spoken to Matt, uh, Reeves about it. I read the script and when mm-hmm. I love this script, I, and, and then I met with him and I went, that's when I went, um, I mean, when I, after I read the script, I knew that I could do a, a great job. But once I spoke to him, I was convinced I could do a good job of it. Was that was was um, let me in the first big uh, Hollywood uh, shoot that you had done, or was there one before that? Well, when you say Hollywood, it, we didn't shoot it in Hollywood. Um, it was shot in Albuquerque. It was American. Um, it was probably smaller in in size than Bright Star, which I'd shot a year earlier. Um, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. 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 So I, again, I, you know, I did have to join the union. I got the hours up and, and all those things. So yeah, effectively it was. Now, I mean, I will backtrack though and say like, again, when I say I can hit out of the park, I, it, it's not, it's not an underlying confident I can hit it out of the park. It's a, it, it's a combination of this terrifies the hell out of me. <laughs> but I know if I put my head down and my bum up and I, and I break through it, I can mm-hmm. I can get this thing I can I can I can nail it. So it's not a it's not unfortunately, and I, I just want to clarify that because it sounds like you know it sounds like every pitch that um, you know I hear w- w- when people are overly confident and overly you know I'm I'm not overly confident, but what I am is I I know if it if it if it gives me that uh, if it scares me enough. I know mm-hmm. that it's it's something that will um, that I'll that I'll put enough energy into that I'll be able to do you know the best job that I possibly can. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the same way for me. Like if I'm not slightly scared of the project, then then I'm not pushing it hard enough. No, exactly. It's, it's exactly. kind of how I feel. If you yeah, exactly. It's kind of it's that um, you need to kind of. That's why acupuncture is so good. Acupuncture doesn't hurt. Well, it's not really it's not useful. It's got to it's got to have that. It's got to get into your nerves it's got to do that thing and i feel like that's mm-hmm. the same with uh with film projects completely agree and it's it's really nice to hear um and it's interesting to hear your origin story because it seems you're i mean dude you're like the the hot ticket right now as far as cinematographers are concerned with the with the stuff that you that you've done and this, like you have Two movies on the horizon that I am so excited about. Uh, one being obviously the Batman, and then the other one, 
is fucking Dune. Like I cannot yeah. wait to see Dune. I mean, Denis has done no wrong. Yeah. Uh, so, so far. So, and I know you probably can't talk a lot about it, but no, I, I mean, no, I can't, I can't, but he, but you're right. He is amazing. And oh my God, I mean, I, listen, all of his films are fantastic. Um, I, my, my favorite, and this is not to downplay any of his other movies, mm-hmm. but my favorite by far is prisoners. I think prisoners. Oh, it's amazing. The most delicately told horror story that mm. I've that I've ever seen. And I think the, the casting and the acting and the, you know, like I, I, I love, um, uh, he's, uh, Hugh, uh, Hugh Jackman. I love Hugh Jackman as an actor. I did a bit of work with him second unit on Australia when he did that. And I, I, mm-hmm. I really like him as a person. And I think, uh, as an actor, I think he's really good. That film. I didn't know that Hugh had that film in him huh. as an, as an audience member. So yeah, did he did. And he got it out of him, and it was an incredible, incredible performance. The one that I, you know, even before I had children or children, you know, of that sort of age, I I was like, man, I I feel his pain. And, you know, it's probably got one of the most uh, delicate, beautiful endings uh, Mm -hmm. of a movie because – I mean, again, I'll be, I'll be quick, but like that movie, you know, you, you go back and you think about all of the um, all of the, the bad things that that Hugh Jackman's character has done to Paul Dana's character, you know, the, yeah. the beatings and this. And listen, half the half of the audience is going to go, yeah, he thought he hurt his kid. He's going to he's justified <laughs> in doing that. And then mm-hmm. there's another half going, hang on, the kid's simple, and he didn't do that. Like it. So therefore, Hugh Jackman should go to jail. Well, you know, not mm-hmm. Hugh Jackman's character. Sorry. And then the other yeah. half would be like, no, no, he deserves to come out of the hole and and uh, and just relive, go back to his normal life. But the thing is that that the story doesn't have to tell you that because um, Gyllenhaal's character hears the whistle at the end, mm-hmm. and then it cuts, which means that me, as a person who said, you know what, let him out of the hole, go and be with his family, and don't talk about it again. I get what mm-hmm. I want, and then you, mm-hmm. who believes that he should be put in jail and tried, also get what you want because it's it's the imagination. Your imagination solves the problem for you. To- so, dude, t- totally, totally. Yeah. And this is a constant battle that I have as a director when I'm pitching things to studios and I'm pitching things to people where uh, at that stage early on when you're in the script stage – all the execs really want everything spelled out for them. Like what's the backstory and how does this work and what, where does this all come from? Mm. And it's, it's this hard battle uh, trying to get from that point that you have to get to in order to get the script sold to the point on screen where you're like, cut it out, cut it all out and leave it yeah. open-ended because if an audience can start to create their own story, it gets closer to what uh, reading a novel is like. You know what right. I mean? Where you're reading a book and you can start to create, you can start to create those those themes that that don't necessarily exist in the movie, but the movie suggests that they might exist, totally. which I think is amazing. And that's what my favorite movies. If you start looking at like Blade Runner and all those movies, they they leave a lot of that stuff open ended, where you have so much more to talk about days, weeks, months, years after you watch that film. Yeah. You know? Well, that's why. I mean, I'll be. I mean going to a new hope star wars like if you had mm-hmm. to sit there and explain to an audience what a kessel run was and a parsec like <laughs> you, you'd be there all for like half an hour just giving the backstory of han solo and the parsec and the and 
And what's a parsec? Yeah. Is it a unit of time or is it a measure of measure? Like what you would have to do some serious, um, serious dialogue to, to, to explain that. Yet the, the, the beauty of that script was that it leaves it open-ended, which, and I remember again, as a kid sitting there mm-hmm. debating the Kessel run, like, and it gave us stuff to talk about. And I watch my <laughs> kids now and they're, they're reading the Lego um, Star Wars book and they're talking about the sand trooper and, and which gun is more powerful. Do you reckon that, I mean, we try not to talk too much about weapons and stuff, but like, sure. you know, which, which trooper do you think could beat, do you reckon the sand trooper could beat the flame trooper or the sword trooper? <laughs> and, and I'm listening to this going, well, okay, that's the Star Wars of it all. And, but then there's going back to the story side of things is like, you actually want some 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 gaps in in storytelling. You you need some things do not need to be explained out in the backstory because I think it takes away some of the magic. But mm-hmm. but again, I mean, I'm not a script writer, so I'm I, I just can react to to what well, I think. But, but I mean, you're you're essential for making the, the the film. You're essential for. I mean, you're essentially taking the script and taking the director's vision and then being the eyes of the audience when you shoot a movie. And so you do know these things. And I think the difficult part of pitching, especially as a visual storyteller, because I consider myself a visual uh, director and a lot of my stuff is is really kind of pretty. You shot Um, shot some of your own stuff too, right? Yeah, yeah. I started as a a quote-unquote cinematographer, self-trained, and then I recently... Uh, found, you know, my brother from another mother, Mr. David Cruder, who shoots most of my new stuff. Uh-huh. Um, but, you know, that's the difficult thing in the pitch process. Because when anybody looks at a script, if someone picks up a script, like you said before, you're hearing it through your own voice, you're hearing it through your own style. Yeah. Um, and it's hard to actually write. It's like sometimes I just want to write in a script like, it's going to look good. <laughs> like uh. You just want to let them know, like, when you see these images cut together, it's going to be understood. Yeah. And it's really difficult to put that on the page and, and then sell that idea. Unless you're someone like David Lynch or someone that has had that prior history and then that love uh, that people have to just go like throw him some money and see what he does. Yeah, for sure. All right, time to take a break. Uh, I hate to do it because this stuff's so great, um, but uh, you know the deal. It's time for us to thank the men and women that help support the show. And I'm not just talking about you guys at home that are reposting and doing stuff. Those of you who are actually doing it, thank you. The rest of you, hmm, I might be judging. First up, our good friends over at Puget Systems. If you're looking for a brand new computer, if, you're, if your old computer is just not cutting it, right? And so you, you're like, what do I do? Do I got to buy a new Apple? You go look at the price on it. And you're like, fuck, this is going to kill me. Well, here's the good news. You don't need to just buy an Apple anymore. You can buy a PC. PCs run. They're stable. They're upgradable. They're affordable. There are a hell of a lot more options with them. You can actually custom build the hardware in that machine to work specifically for what your needs are. Go to PugetSystems.com. There you can choose a baseline system based upon the software you use, which makes things easy. Um, and then they like to communicate with you. You can actually custom build the system. You can talk to them and say, hey, here's how much money I have. Here's what I need. And here's what I want. And they'll run through their 
weeks and months and years of beta testing and benchmark testing and they'll tell you what hardware works with what and what is worth the money and what isn't worth the money it's a great place to form a relationship with a company that will continue to support you and be there for you but also it's a great place to build a machine that is going to be smoking fast i'm in the process of getting a brand new machine from these guys in the next couple of weeks i am super excited about it super fucking excited um, and for those of you who don't live in the country, who've been like, Mike, I can't get a Puget because they don't ship internationally. Well, here's the good news. They're, they're offering up a consultation program now. You can go to Puget Systems, we'll put the link below. Um, but they're offering up for, at a starting fee of like 500 bucks. They will walk you through how to build a PC for your needs. They'll tell you what hardware to get. They'll tell you how to put it together. They'll go through the whole process with you. So if you're someone that wants to build your own PC, but you need a bit of knowledge from these guys, Check them out. Go to PugetSystems.com. The links will be below and click those fucking links. Next up, good friends over at Quasar Science, one of the best advancements. I'm sure Greg might. I didn't get a chance to ask him that on the show, but uh, I know he uses a lot of LED lighting. I know he used LED lighting on Rogue One. I know he's been using it on a bunch of different things. But I've read articles about how excited he is about being able to basically grade on set, color grade on set. And all those things come from being able to use LED lights. Uh, and one of the leaders in that world is Quasar Science. Go to QuasarScience.com. There they have amazing LED lights, bicolor lights, uh, RGB, rainbow lights, um, all sorts of different stuff. Uh, I have a bunch of tubes in my kit. I have a few bicolor lights in my kit. Uh, and I use them all the time. So I'm not saying that LED lights is the only lights to use. There's a light for everything, but a lot of people ask me what's in my kit. I've got Quasar stuff in there. So go to QuasarScience.com. Check it out if you're building your own kit and you need something portable and you need something that is multifunctional. Those guys do great work. So go check them out. Um, and also, if you want to support the show, uh, sign up for a free trial at Audible. So if you use our link below, it's audibletrial.com backslash in love with the process. The link is below. Um, there, uh, you'll get a access to the website for free for 30 days. You'll get a free audiobook uh, and access to all their content. Uh, listen to it, hang out with it. You're gonna get addict. You're gonna be addicted to it. There's gonna be a bunch of different books you're gonna want to read. Um, it's not a bad price per month once you get past the 30 days. But if you're in a, a situation where you're like, look, I can't really afford that. Let me just do the 30 day trial and then I'll cancel it. Do what you got to do, man. It's fine by us. We still get paid. Okay, so best way to give us a donation. If you like the show, if you want more from the show, sign up for our Audible trial. Uh, link below and also on In Love With The Process in our sponsors page. You'll find all that stuff, including our deal with uh, Capital One cards. We also have a great deal in those. All that stuff's there. Go to inloveoftheprocess.com backslash sponsors. Okay, let's get back into it. Back to more with Greg. Well, skipping ahead, because there's a bunch of stuff I want to talk to you about, and I don't want to hold you up all day. Um, you uh, mentioned uh, Star Wars stuff. I honestly think that Rogue One is the by far the best-looking Star Wars film shot, period. Thank you. Uh, I, I think it. that movie is absolutely gorgeous. 
I was very excited to hear that you were the one shooting it. And I just watched it again the other day. And I know that there's a, there was a bunch of drama that went on as far as like getting that movie wrapped up and story-wise and everything. But how, how was the experience for you working with uh, like LucasArts and ultimately working for Disney? Like, is it, is it still an artful, creative experience or does it feel like you're working for Walmart over there? No, no, no. It's definitely not the Walmart thing. And, you know... Big films are are an interesting beast because the bigger the film, the more people have a voice in mm -hmm. the way this film is. Now, um, Star Wars is probably, I mean, if you talk about feeling ill when you think about something, <laughs> the idea of doing a Star Wars movie and displeasing a lot of people or pleasing a lot of people, like it's, I mean, I feel so much um, admiration for for JJ Abrams and for, for Gareth and for um, Ryan Johnson and mm -hmm. you know I, I feel so much admiration for those boys because talk about again talk about feeling terrified that's I don't think you could feel more terrified than being the guy that does the first of the new trilogy you know or the first spin-off of Star Wars um, because yeah. there's so much writing on it and George Lucas is not involved. And, you know, so it, it is very much filmmaker-led. But obviously there is, a, there's of course, like any film that has uh, has a budget, it needs to sell tickets. And there are people who, story people who are kind of on that. And um, no, I think I think that the joy of that and the, you know, and, and I can say genuinely in hindsight, because obviously when you're, um, when you're in the middle of any production, you know, even right now in the middle of, of, of Batman, like it, it, it's not the best time to talk about it because, well, first of all, you can't, but second of sure. all, it's like being underwater. You, you, you can't see what's going on until you're above the water and you can go, ah, this is what happened. Um, no, but it's a perfect situation where we had the opportunity and the resources to make that film better, you know? Mm. And yeah. the, the the outdated system of I say outdated because this is the way most films get made, which is you write a script, yes, you go and shoot mm -hmm. it, yes, mm -hmm. you edit it, yes, and you show it. Now, if you have the opportunity to go back and repair this thing or or, or make that moment better or impactful or you know animations do it, they do it all the time. They they sketch, they they, they do the dialogue, they sketch it out. People might come back a few times to picks up some dialogue. No one ever talks yeah. about Toy Story, how many trips Tom Hanks made into to voice Toy Story, you know? <laughs> that's true. It's very no one true. Does because that's yeah. the process. And that process is, you know, they, they storyboard it, they line draw it. I mean, I don't fully know the process of animation, but they, they do a rough pass with either, but not the actors, but other actors. And, you know, and they, they come up with a film. So they all sit there and they go, all right, this film is ready to be, colored in and properly mixed or voiced. Uh, yeah, it makes all the sense in the world. Like as a director, I love to try to schedule at least a few reshoot days after you're in the edit room because no matter what, there's no such thing as perfection. And the, the, the thing no. that's so amazing about making a movie is that even if you make a real piece of shit, even if it's a crappy movie, it's a miracle that it was even made. Yeah. Uh, and so 
there's, you always end up, I always end up in the edit room and I'm like, man, if I had just got an insert or two things, then I would have furthered the suspension of disbelief in the scene. And I just need to further that. I need to shoot these inserts in order to get that. And I like, it, it's true. I think that should be part of the process in general. And it's kind of a luxury on your part, uh, working for a company like that, that allows for that because most of the time you just don't get that because the budgets run out. When people like you, you can't shoot anything. We got no more money left. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. You know, and so, and so you're sort of stuck with that. Um, I mean, people I like just, large large films schedule mm-hmm. it. Like large films schedule it, and they know that you know you're finishing in uh, in January uh, or sorry December. We've got directors yep. edit, then we've got the studio viewing, and come April May, we'll be doing some pickups, and that's scheduled and budgeted and. The idea that, um, listen, again, part of the reason why that was in the news was because people need to read about Star Wars. And so Mm -hmm. people Mm -hmm. need to read about it and people make money when people read their stories about Star Wars. So it's, it's the, it's the unfortunate yucky side of our business that, that, that somebody will report and write about something and make it sound like a bigger deal than it is in order to get clicks and um you know it, it, it's not going to sell a click if you go you know rogue one are um making the, uh, a film better for the viewer um by adding some reach some pickup days and and dividing and conquering knowing that the end dates like the, the reality wouldn't sell it's boring it's boring yeah, but, <laughs> yeah of course but, but of course. you start to talk about you know drama and this and that and wow yeah it's that sells clicks. So it's a, it's a, it's a bit of a bit of a yucky side of things. Yeah. It's, but it's that way in general, even with other things outside of the movie industry. And, and I think that I have to do an episode on it because I, I've talked to a lot of writers and journalists and how journalism is basically dying because no one is able to afford a good journalist because no one's actually paying for the news and everything's mm. for free. So it's, it's this really awkward game. And then when you actually look, cause I've been asked to write articles and when you actually see the breakdown in which you get paid, it's disgusting where it's just like, Oh, I need to have like 150,000 clicks on this thing for me to make $200. Like, yeah. so it's, it's, it's like really kind of a crappy side of the business. I'm um, hoping that, I'm hoping that, um, that everybody sort of, I don't know, look, look through Apple, news for example i i don't know I, I don't know how that works and if that's a good thing for news or not but but i agree it, it, you get what you pay for ultimately and if you're reading free news then yeah you've got to yeah. watch where it comes from and what it's saying because it's uh somebody's paying for it somewhere so yeah. yeah yeah totally well let's let's move on a bit let's get into some of my favorite stuff which is lighting um and uh i would say that you have this consistent like beautiful softness in a lot of your work that i really love 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 um and uh i think a lot of that comes down to two things from from the outside perspective it seems like it comes down to your lens choices and it also comes down to how uh you like to light scenarios um what's uh what's your process of choosing lenses for each project, do you have a, like a set of lenses that you like, this is how I see the world or are wow. you specifically choosing lenses based upon the story? Uh, yeah. I mean, it, a, a couple of questions need to get, get answered first. And, and that is the ratio that you're shooting into, you know? So, mm-hmm. you know, um, obviously if you're shooting one eight five, uh, then it's unlikely that you're going to use anamorphic lenses. 
you can, mm-hmm. uh, particularly mm-hmm. with a larger format. You can crop down and and still get the resolution you need. Um, but it's unlikely that you're going to choose anamorphics. Um, if you're shooting 2.4.0, then you've got both options. And then it becomes a, an aesthetic choice that the director uh, and yourself um, like or don't like. Like, for example, Matt Reeves, who I did Let Me In With and I'm doing Batman With, loves the anamorphic lens, just loves mm-hmm. anamorphic lens. Um, Garth Davis, who I did Lion With and Mary Magdalene, does mm-hmm. not care for an anamorphic lens. And it's for him, it's what it does to the backgrounds and to the characters. And by, but both of them are 100% correct in their opinion. You know, it doesn't, just because Matt thinks something doesn't make Garth wrong or vice versa. It just means right. their aesthetic in the world is, is different. So I have to be, um, I have definitely have to be kind of mindful of that because that director needs to look at these images every day that we shoot and then every day that they cut. And so if I'm, <laughs> if I'm giving them lenses that are, that are not their, their choice or not their aesthetic, then that's a problem. Um, of course. Yeah. So it begins there, it becomes a conversation and, and some directors uh, know instantly what they love and some you have to, you, you test like, but, but sometimes it changes too on, on zero dark 30. Catherine and I um, tested a ton of lenses and we chose, I think, uh, anamorphics. We, we, I think we were going to get G series anamorphics on the mm-hmm. Alexa and we were prepping them and, and, and Catherine rang me sort of, you know, early on in the prep and said, yeah, Greg, I'm, I'm looking at some of our tests again. I'm not feeling the anamorphic. I, I think we need to go spherical. And here's why. Uh-huh. And she laid it out and she was a thousand percent correct. And again, you know, you go through the process. We were right when we chose anamorphic, but she was absolutely right when she went anamorphic to cinematic. It, it mm-hmm. reminds me too much of a, of a movie. This, mm-hmm. We have to run the line of a procedural movie. This has to be mm-hmm. uh, not pretty per se, traditionally pretty. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we can't lean into all the beautiful things that Anamorphic gives us. We've got to actually lean away from that, which she was 100% right by. So, you know, we, we quickly sh- shifted over to, to Cooks and, uh, and Optical Elites and and the movie looks how it looks because of that. So, mm-hmm. um it's, yeah, it's, so it's, it's nice to hear because it's that, that's that's storytelling decision making and I think a big mistake that we make when we're younger is that we get obsessed with certain tools and, and tricks aesthetically and we just want to get our hands on those and we want to play around in that playground but like uh, her her understanding that there is sort of a stigma that comes with a specific look that's custom built into the audience to begin with so even before any word is said just the format itself says something specific to a general audience and understanding that and whether or not that works for your story and doesn't work for your story. That's good decision-making when you're, when you're talking about what lenses to use. It's, it's nice to hear that because I I think a lot of times, especially outside of the end, well, I don't want to say outside of the industry, but on a lower budget level, a lot of us are just sort of uh, consistently hit with like, this is the tool to use for the job and you have to buy this and these are the specific lenses that you should be using. You should shoot this on red and technology, yep. technology. Um, but at the end of the day, we're supposed to be making these decisions because it's good for the story, right? Good for the characters. Hey folks, it's Liam. We experienced some technical issues at this section. So I had to cut out a part 
no big deal. Normally I try to cut it without giving any explanation, but this is one of the things where Mike's deep dive into why choosing lenses is really important for the narrative. I felt just needed to be included, but it sounds a little weird when we jump back into Greg's next part because he just continues talking on what's the next step after choosing those lenses. So I just wanted to clarify where the cut was. It's gonna sound a little different, uh, but that's what it is. We're not cutting anything out. You're getting all the good info and uh, yeah, we're back to the show. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so then you get into a, a, a conversation with the director and you end up deciding what the feel is and that therefore uh, helps you choose the lenses. The next step is figuring out what format you're shooting on. Because if you're shooting on film, you can use the natural softness of the, of the film to choose slightly sharper lenses. But if you're shooting digitally, mm -hmm. uh, even a large format, and this is something that as the formats got larger, um, the, you know, the Arri went to, like the Red went to a bigger format and, and Arri went to a bigger format. And, and the same rules don't apply for lenses on a large format that they do for a 16mm camera or a 16mm format. Mm. You can afford for the lenses to resolve less yet still have that feeling of, of I wouldn't say sharpness because I hate sharpness, but you need it to resolve. You, you need it not to look blurry, you know. Um, so it's right, about finding right, right, right. the special line in the, uh, uh, in the, in the sand where you actually have a, a resolving sharp image, but it feels, um, like soft and it's just a terrible word to use, but it feels like it has some character. Yeah, like creamy. It's almost like this creamy feel that that yeah. it has where or almost painterly because there's a difference between when you're doing like super HHD where it's just unbelievably crisp and then there's something about that sort of creaminess and I think a lot of that comes personally I think a lot of that comes from atmosphere too like whether or not you're using sure. haze and smoke and all that For kind sure. of stuff that also does it as well um and then and then the lens choices at the same time um and then when as far as um See, it's a, it's a difficult question because I had a bunch of fans asking questions about lighting for you, and lighting should be dictated by the story as well. So it's not like you have one trick that you do for close-ups or one trick that you do for some specific task. It's it's all fluid. 100%. Correct? The thing is that it's got to feel, well, again, if I, if I say it's got to be or I do it like this, I, I'm breaking every single rule that I'm trying to to avoid, which is, having a thing being a having a signature style or having a okay he is the he's the dude that shoots it, dot 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 because I, I, mm -hmm. I, I don't like boxing myself in now obviously i have an aesthetic and that's as a result of you know whatever references i i ingested as a young person and as a young dp but but i would like to think that i could turn on a dime where if i needed to do something more film noir, a bit more sharp edges and backlight and silhouettes that I could do that without much fuss, you know? And, um, f for me, there is a naturalism that I do definitely steer towards. And that naturalism mm -hmm. is, uh, I haven't really done any kind of out like outlandish, um, 
fruity movies. You know, I haven't really done anything like that. And I would love to, like, I would love somebody to ring me and offer me a, you know, a, 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 a fruity kind of uh, musical or, or something, you know, like, and mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Like, so I would love that challenge. I'd love that challenge to, to, to do a fruity film, but still make it something that I can digest as a, as a viewer. Cause I'm effectively, as you just said, you know, the director of the DP are the eyes of the audience. So I feel like if I'm looking at an image and I feel a bit uh, confused by it or a bit, um, you know, I, I'm, I, then I, the audience is going to feel that too subconsciously, but I'm the person who can yeah. consciously make the changes to the image. So the audience feels something subconsciously because I understand things consciously that they don't. So that that's the, the lighting thing that I, if it, if it feels wrong, if it feels overlit, um, if it feels unnatural, then, uh, then yeah, it's, it's a problem. Hmm. And I guess the, that transitions into my next question, which is uh, in the pre-production and the planning of this stuff. And I know that there are different types of directors out there. There are directors that are incredibly visually oriented and storyboard and shot list every sort of scene. And then there are directors that like to work with actors and they leave a lot of that in the hands of the cinematographer. When you have an opportunity to start prepping a scene or start planning out coverage or start thinking about how you would shoot it, is there a a system that you have in place for that? Is there a series of steps that you do in the beginning? It's it's all about referencing. It's about creating a picture in your mind and on your walls and in your director's mind about what this film feels like or what it's not, you know, um, mm-hmm. it's about ingestion of, of the materials that, that make it all add up so that when you're standing on set, looking at a lighting setup that you can go, ah, it doesn't feel right. That lens doesn't feel right. Or, you know, and things get, listen, things change too. As you start, you might, start a movie and say, I feel like my primary lens is going to be the 50 and the 75. But then you realize that every time you shoot on the 50, that it's too, too wide and you need to actually mm-hmm. get yourself in a 60 mil lens or you, you need to widen out on the 75 or, or there's something like, and this is where, you know, when you work differently with different directors, different people have different responses. And you, you know, I mean, I, I was just, talking to, to to Matt about some of the stuff we shot early on, on on Batman and not some of it, a shot. And he was like, I reckon we're about two inches too tight on that shot. I'm like, you're right. It should have been one size longer <laughs> and back or a touch wider. And so that now conversation's done. We don't we won't ever make that mistake again. And he probably won't use the shot anyway, so it doesn't matter. So you know it's kind of like it's a it's a learning discovery as you go. And um, based on the ingredients that you have in your kitchen uh, when you start the, the process. Are you still, are you still nervous with, with, with the amount of films that you've done at this point? Are you still nervous on first day on the set? Um, there, is, there is never a first day on the set anymore. You always seem to be shooting pre-days and, and pre-shoot days and um, – there's always something that you 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 do in advance of the actual shoot, um, but yeah, yeah. I guess so. I mean, to be t- to be honest, yeah. I mean, the the first day that you have to do something serious that's going to make the movie, yeah, 
I mean, it's like, are these lenses right? Uh, is this the right choice of format? Are we doing the right, is this the right lot? Like everything is, um, everything is hangs in the balance, you know, the, yeah, yeah. I mean, the first, um, the first day is always a, a bit of finding a rhythm, you know, and if it's mm-hmm. a crew that you've worked with before that helps, but generally it's not everybody that you've worked with before. It, there's different art people or different, uh, you know, sound people or whatever, but, but, but getting the rhythm is always the hard part. And that's generally the biggest thing on the first day. Yeah. 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 Which is, and the other thing that I find but that I wanted to talk to you about too, is that when I did, when I do lighting, oftentimes, I think a lot of the audience members that listen to the show may not work in the, in the film business. So they don't understand that to light a scene, especially if you're working with like major talent, you're bringing in stand-ins and you're lighting with stand-ins. And sometimes when I'm lighting with stand-ins or people that are just standing in for me, I have trouble making the light work a hundred percent, or I just can't seem to find that magic. And then I always feel that when the talent walks in, it's like, Oh, there it is. There's this unspoken magical thing that I wasn't actually doing with the light. It's just that we physically want to look at this human yeah. being for a period of time. I mean, do you yeah, feel the I same mean, I think way? That, I mean, it, it's, it sounds like an obvious thing to people who don't stand on set. Well, yeah, of course it's Brad Pitt. Um, duh, like no one can stand in for you. And have the same something that Brad Pitt has. He's Brad Pitt. He's got that. Like it's no, it it, it seems really obvious, but it's not because you're right. You get this, you're lighting, and you go, eh, or, 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 or you've lit your. The, the flip side of that coin is that you may have lit your stand in really well, and then your main actor comes out, <laughs> and there might be very deep recessed yeah. eyes or different whatever, and you're like, oh. Okay, hang on. Yeah. So that's, again, that's a learning curve. You go, <laughs> I, I know that I might need to lower the light level, uh, lower the height of the light to, to reach into persons. There, there are actors, though, that do like to stand in for themselves, which, which, uh, which I find interesting. That's a debate that I'm willing to have on set with a, with a director or, a, or a, um, an actor if that's something they should do. Oh, do you do you not agree with that, or do you think that's well, a thing? And, and this is the honest truth, and I will I'd happily say this to any actor that wants to stand in for themselves. I'm, I would love that for them to stand in for themselves, but but part of what I need as a DP when someone's standing in is focus. Like they can't be talking, they can't be looking over their shoulder talking to the person behind them. They can't be looking at their shoe. Mm-hmm. They can't be checking their phone. Uh, like I, I need. I need some focus. And, and generally if there's an actor on set, they're, they're, they're talking to the director, which is valid, right? They should be. Um, sure. And so sure. there are times I've kind of like had to say, uh, say to an actor and a director, listen guys, do me a favor. I, I just need a, I need someone just to focus on for a minute. Can I bring the stand in? Um, and, and it's, it's a tricky one. It's a tricky one because the, the stand in is, is effectively a, a C stand. I mean, I, I don't mean that disrespectfully. Um, uh, sure. They're effectively a, a C stand. I need them to, to stand still and um, focus. And you know, and and on, on June we had a few. We went through a few stand-ins that were kind of when they stood in. They were, they came in. They were joking around. And again, I'm not against the idea of someone having fun. But but if if I'm at the monitor and I need to see somebody when they look through the window, 
and I go back to the monitor and then mm -hmm. I have to say, dude, look, in the, like if I have to say it every time, it's a waste of my breath. So we, yeah. we figured out we had some – I'd much prefer a stand-in that has the right amount of focus than a stand-in that looks like the person I'm lighting. So, you know, on, on, on June, we, we went through a few stand-ins and I found a couple of really solid stand-ins that, that, you know, became integral to me, to me as, as a on set, you know, and I made sure they were well, uh, well clapped for at the end of the film because they were, they were m m instrumental <laughs> in making sure that I could do my job. Yeah, because a lot of people don't realize, and this is something that comes from portrait photography, a, a lot of people don't realize that, you know, a few centimeters in the distance between a nose and a cheekbone changes how you light yeah. everything, you know? And uh, light is such a, fa I, I have such a love affair with light, and light is such a fascinating thing. It's almost like this fluid, the way it splashes and the way it bounces and the way it wraps and the different diffusions and different lights you use and how it affects your skin and like you, I'm sure you and I could sit here and talk yeah. for four hours Positive. on the light. Um, but, but it's that's such an interesting little uh, uh, conversation to have about the standards because there's nothing more fucking frustrating than trying to find those subtleties, especially if you're doing close-up work and you're like, this is yeah. essential. The lighting is 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 essential to the emotion of this thing. And how do I get it to be? How do I get that perfect little highlight? Or how do I get that? that jawline to look correct or uh, how do I make this person seem like a dreamlike mm. being? Um, and the standards are fucking really yeah. important for that. Yeah. It, it, it's, I mean, I find generally I, I learn quite quickly when, when a stand is there and then the, the first team come on and the differences and I have to then change. I mean, listen, it's, there are times I have to say, I'm sorry, um, Mr. Mr. Actor. Um, I, I need to make a change because it's not right. And would you mind doing me a favor and just looking in that direction and holding that pose for a sec? And that's where if you've got a good lighting team, you've got guys in all the stands, you've got the, the DMX board operator that you can play with levels and you can hopefully quickly without wasting too much time just, just finagle the, the light and hopefully that does the job, reducing the levels, moving it down a bit, whatever it is. Um, if it doesn't, then it's back to the drawing board and sorry, I, I need to make a massive change. Um, I need 10 more minutes, you know, and, and that's part of the, the, the game, isn't it? Like you, you never want to waste yeah. time on set. You never want to waste a director's time with an actor ever, but you also are responsible for this thing existing in a hundred years. And if suddenly you're watching the movie and this actor looks bad or looking bad is not necessarily a bad thing. Sometimes it's a good thing for the drama, but if, if the, the lighting doesn't look appropriate and it draws you out of the film, well then that needs to be fixed. So um, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a fine balance, you know, it's a fine balance between how much you, um, how much you sort of take the time to do that. Yeah. And, and a good DP does a good P DP understands that balance. A good DP understands when, when it's time to get the coverage and don't worry about the specular highlights of the background and when it's time to actually dial this in. And, and I think I try to have that communication with my cinematographer where it's like, this is, this is the time, like this is the time for you to take the time, make this stuff look really great because those other shots are literally going to end up on screen for about like two, three frames. So let's just move on from there. Um, I'm going to need um, to wrap this up in five minutes. Mike, is there, should, should we 
Sure, yeah. man. I was just Probably less actually. Yeah, yeah. I was just going to wrap it up for you because, I, like I said, Thank I don't, don't want to hold you. you up. I'm sorry. So I'm, I guess it's taken so uh, long to finally do this thing with you, and like it's this is the type of day I'm having. I'm sorry. Like it's, and I just, I forgot that phone call. I mean, I, I, I thought it was tomorrow cause someone's calling from New Zealand and I'm like, Oh, it's Friday. That's right. It's Friday today. Not Thursday. Anyway. Sorry. Dude, it's totally fine. At some point I, after you guys do Batman, yeah. come back on the show and we'll have a oh, longer sure. conversation. Sure. But, um, the last question I'll ask you is what I usually ask all the guests because there's a lot of young cinematographers that are definitely tuning into this. Um, I would say, Advice wise on like getting in with a crew, like what do you think is the smartest way for a young cinematographer to meet or to get in with the right team of people and find a good director? I'm sure film school is a good thing because um, there are lots of people uh, finding a group of people that are, that are doing things and making things I, I think is the trick, you know, and you know, I had my little film school equivalent, uh, with exit films in Melbourne. I had lots of directors and cinematographers and people that were just coming in and out, but a lot of artists. You know, a lot of people I know went through film school and, and I think what they got out of film school was not just the learning from the lecturers. It was that, that sense of community. Um, mm -hmm. I think you just need to start, I mean, if you're a cinematographer and you want to shoot um, a, a, a great project, you find a director who is around your level um, and you you email them and you hassle them to work with them and offer them whatever it is. They might already have their own cinematographer, but you like, well, I'll come on as a second unit. Like, or, or you email a DP and say, I'm happy to come on as a second unit or something. Like it's just important to keep your wheels turning, you know, and I, I think it's important to keep your wheels turning with people who have are in the position uh, that you either want to be in or, that you respect the work of that you know you can help their work and vice versa. So it's like, it's like just injecting yourself into a conversation when you're at a party. Like it's kind of a bit like that. You, you just have to be a little bit forthright and go, Hey, uh, here I am. And, uh, let's, let's make something or I'll come and help you. Or, you know, I remember back really early on when I was started to shoot, I had a lot of people kind of who were not shooting. They were like, Oh yeah, any, any help you need, we'll come and help. And, I really want to get into the industry. This is me, bear, bear in mind, say, doing my first short film. Okay, so, mm -hmm. and I remember there were a number of people that really wanted to get out of their job working at the photography store and they wanted to get into the film business or whatever it was. And I'm like, cool, all right. And I remember there was one event. We did this short film and we had a, it was a Saturday night shoot and we were shooting on a, in a, in a, on a, in a, in a football field. And I emailed mm -hmm. or texted all these people, not all, there's like three, and said, hey, need a hand, come out, love you to come and help. And, and two of them went, all of them went, yep, sure. Two of them a day before pulled out, went, oh, no, no, we, we can't, we're busy. And I went, bang, there, there's your, there's the distinction between the people that will be <laughs> doing what they want to do and the people that will talk about doing what they want to do but will not do it because those two people felt like they could have spent Saturday night in a bar rather than, than working for free um, in, on a football field in, in, you know what I mean? Like it's, it kind of, it sorts the, the mm -hmm. wheat from the chaff. Like it's, you know, the, 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 the sexist term is the men from the boys. Like it's, it, it sorts out the people who will do something or not do something. 
So just, yeah, commit and do it. And just, just keep wheels turning, keep working hard. That episode just went by way too quick. Did it not, right? I mean, I'm so happy that I got the time with him uh, to be able to ask these questions. And then just hearing that he goes through a lot of the same problems that I've been through on set and just hearing that even at his level, he's still dealing with like, how do I light actors and how do I get stand-ins in there to do the right thing? It's just nice to hear, you know? It's nice to know because then I'm getting a glimpse at the fact that when you finally get to that point, it's the same. It's just bigger. But all those same things that you've been teaching yourself at home and all your friend shoots and finding those rhythms and all those tricks, they just go with you, right? Because that's the fear. You get that job. You get that big gig. You're showing up on set for the first day and you're like, oh man, this, it's all going to be different. Nah. It's just bigger. It's just bigger. All those tricks that you're learning now, all that stuff, that toolbox that you're putting together right now, you're going to be reaching into that on day one on any of these big jobs. So thank you again, Greg, for being on the show. Really appreciate it, my man. And uh, what I would like to do, uh, I talked to him a bit offline. I'm going to hit him up after Batman comes out and try to continue this conversation. Uh, hopefully after COVID, he won't be uh, as insane because... We were talking prior to the recording, life changes for a lot of people, especially get people in the industry and in the business because you're working so much. Um, and so they're trying to balance meetings and work and film, but also trying to balance home life at the same time without any support. Um, and so life is just insane for a lot of people right now. Um, but. He's super cool, wasn't complaining about anything, and really was able to make the time for us. So, again, thank you so much, Greg, for being on the show. Um, thank you guys for listening. Hope you guys dug it. I keep telling you that I'm going to get bigger and better guests, and we do. We do. Right? We've been, we've been, have we been, have we been uh, coming through for you guys? Write to me. Let me know. You're like, Mike, well, you like these guests. They're really good. Keep doing it. Or just say, look, Stop talking. <laughs> Send me a message that says, hey, dude, shut the fuck up. All right, dude. Yeah. I will see you guys later, right? <laughs> I don't know how to wrap this show up. It's such a whirlwind going through it. It was such a fast interview, but man, I have learned a few things in there. Oh, and more than anything else, I think I had some of my nerves settled. Um, and it's, it's a fascinating to know that... If I had been just a little bit earlier in my career, just a, just a little bit earlier doing music videos and stuff, I probably would have met him earlier too. So it's weird how this business works. Okay, guys, I'm rambling. So thanks for listening. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, uh, we're releasing twice a week. So we'll have our special COVID episode Friday episodes coming out as long as we're still in the quarantine. Um, and, uh, Fingers crossed and everything. Uh, hopefully when quarantine comes out, hopefully a movie happens and then everything changes and uh, we'll see what the show ends up becoming, which could be something much cooler. Uh, so stay with us for the ride. There's plenty to listen to. 
I love you all. I appreciate you all. And I'll see you next Tuesday.